Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Highly Functional. This is Brianne Showman, and I am joined today by Monica Volkmar. Monica and I had a great discussion diving into how our movement patterns impact every aspect of our lives, as well as how some of those patterns are developed from things we don't even think about. Whether you are an athlete, a clinician, or a coach, I think you'll find this conversation highly valuable. So let's tune in. Monica, thank you for joining me today. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on your show, Brianne. You are quite welcome. I'm excited to talk to you. Um, A lot of, I feel like we have a lot of parallels as far as like my like injuries I had in the past kind of led to where I am today. And you kind of um, have a similar story with, with some of that. So I really want to dive into that today, but first and foremost, who are you? It's <laughs> a good question. How does one even answer that? Um, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I guess for the context of whoever is going to be listening to this, who am I today? And uh, what I do in my practice is I am a personal trainer and a body worker and a movement educator from Toronto. And my main area of interest is studying and mentoring anatomy and motion which is a way of looking at how the body moves through the lens of the gait cycle and looking at what every joint in the body does in three dimensions from one end of its spectrum to the other in the space of less than a second uh, when we do a one step through the gait cycle. So I'm very interested in biomechanics and helping people to restore their most optimal, efficient way of moving based on that model. Awesome. So let's kind of dive in. How did you, I guess, come about this? Like you were not always, you did not necessarily like go to college to be a physical therapist or a chiropractor or a kinesiologist or any of that. So how did you get involved with this path? Yeah, uh, that's actually when people start working with me, they're usually referred to me from someone who is a physio, at least at one of the clinics where I work at. And they're like, so what are you? Like, I, I don't even know how to answer this question. Like you said, I've, I've had a bit of a journey of self, self-discovery through having a lot of problems of my own. So my original career path before I got into this body helping industry was as a dancer. And I was training as a dancer since age 12, which was a little bit late. But I just kind of fell into it and I had a bit of a natural knack for it. And I was encouraged by my parents to continue to explore it. So I kept going down that path. Um, but as you probably are aware, I'm sure you have worked with some dancers before. It's really like a 100% chance you're going to get injured <laughs> in that career path. Um, and it didn't really all start to happen until I was in my early 20s after I'd gone to university. I went to Ryerson University in Toronto for their dance Uh, bachelor of fine arts program. Um, But to be honest, I didn't really want to be there. I was just doing what I thought I should do. And I didn't really know, like, who knows what they want to do after they've finished high school. No one really knows unless you're seriously lucky. And I've had that insight. So I was just kind of going along with it. And I was in a world I really didn't fit in with. And it was very psychologically an unhealthy, toxic environment for me to put myself in because of who I was and just not fitting with that world. So there was many, many factors involved, which I don't know how far you want to get into that. Uh, but, but in my early 20s, I just started having injury after injury after injury because my body had finally had enough. And, you know, that analogy of it's like you have this bucket of sand and 
you keep putting sand in the bucket and it fills and it fills and it fills. And you're not really noticing that it's filling until that one grain of sand is the tipping point at which it overflows. And that point hit when I was 21. And then it was like hip injury, knee injury, back injury, back injury, back injury, neck injury, back injury again, hamstring injury. Okay, then you're done. And that was my sign from life that this is not your path. And at that point, I had no other skills. I wasn't really interested in anything else. I had devoted myself entirely to this career that I actually hated. So I really had no option but to, well, I can go like back home and live with my parents and work at a minimum wage job, or I can figure out the mess I got myself into. And so I chose the latter and I started in the most accessible industry, which is personal training. And I thought that, well, strength is the solution. All my dance teachers said that I need to be stronger. So if I get stronger, I'm not going to be hurt anymore. I'm going to be pain-free. Life's going to be great if I can just be strong. So I got into that. And actually, initially, my first offering was a strength training program for dancers, because I thought that, well, if I can teach dancers to be strong, they can overcome their injuries. They don't have to go through what I went through, they can prevent injuries and get stronger and perform better and all that good stuff. And it was super idealistic. And my clients got great results, but it just wasn't sustainable because dancers have no money to afford this kind of training. Uh, yeah. So, so anyway, so I, that's, that's the path where I entered. And from there, I started to learn forms of body work. I currently practice time massage and craniosacral therapy and anatomy and motion. And I also still do some personal training and strength training. Um, so that's kind of how where I got to today in a nutshell. So you, you mentioned as far as like, you started strengthening because that's what everyone told you the answer. As you started strengthening or as you started working with other dancers and started adding strength, what were your, what were you finding? Was it like everyone was getting great results? Were you still finding there was a lag there? Hmm. I guess I'll speak personally for myself, what I experienced when I was probably 21 ish, I started strength training and I, I was still dancing at this point, And I immediately noticed that everything about my technique was improving, even though I was doing a very classical powerlifting style routine. So squats, deadlifts, uh, rows, pushups, pressing, very, very basic standard strength training and everything got better. Like, um, and we were taught that it shouldn't, we were taught that cross training is bad because you're training in positions with your feet turned forwards and dance ballet anyways, but you got to have your feet turned out. And for many reasons, we were discouraged from doing any kind of cross training, but I noticed immediately that there was some major improvements and I'm not sure exactly what the mechanism of that was. Maybe it was creating a better full body, uh, like brain to muscle connection. Um, maybe it was just letting go of always being in one position and training something different. So short term, I noticed really massive improvements and, but then it, it's kind of petered out and things got worse. And what I suspect is the reason is because I did not have a very well aligned foundation and I, I obviously I can't know because I wasn't aware at the time, but I suspect that I had just everything about my alignment was asymmetrical and off kilter. And then I was trying to do heavy lifts on top of that, thinking that if I just do good technique, then it'll be fine. But 
you can only really do the technique your body's able to do. So no matter how much I forced myself to have like a neutral symmetrical alignment, if my actual joints options and availability can't get there, then I'm just imposing my best idea of good alignment, but still not actually changing what I'm able to do. Just reinforcing that same asymmetric pattern over and over and over and over. So I think when I was working with my, my early on dance clients, I wasn't even aware of this either. I was doing my best and, you know, you can kind of see some glaringly obvious things, but long-term, um, I think there's some very subtle details in how we're moving that get missed. And the further down our path we go and the stronger we get by layering on strength on top of a poorly stacked foundation, I think eventually something's going to show up as feeling not quite right. And that's what I was learning for myself and my own body. And I think that's why I was really really gravitated towards the teachings of Gary Ward and anatomy in motion because he and their courses are all about the fine details and the nuances and finding that little thing that's throwing everything off. And I'm a little bit OCD, not actually, but like personality wise, just, I love details and attention to specificity. So that's where I, I really love things now. I don't know. Did I answer your question? You did. And I love the direction you took it because it's, I think, an important thing to really dive into or talk about that so many times like injuries happen to people like, well, I just need to strengthen X area or areas and not understanding that's like you're, if you have faulty movement patterns in your body, compensated patterns, you're basically strengthening these bad patterns which just keeps these injuries recurring. And I think it's an area that's missed a lot of times in a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And I think with highly trained movers too, we have this idea of we can make it look like we can fake good technique and good posture pretty well. And then it gets even harder and harder to pinpoint what's wrong because we're very good, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, at covering it up. I don't know if you've run into that with uh, you work with a lot of athletes as well, I think, right? Mm -hmm. So you probably have witnessed that. Oh, absolutely. Like, and I think, you know, kind of similar how you said, like, you're very much attention to detail in the same way. And I feel like that's probably why a lot of people do miss some of those compensations and things, because people are great at hiding them as best as they can in order to like maintain good form. But it's until you really start looking at the intricacies of the movement that you really start noticing some of those things. Mm -hmm. And what's amazing about looking at gait as an observation is it's very unconscious. No matter how much you try, like when you're walking up and down a room for a therapist, no matter how much you try to control how you're walking, you can't be aware of every single joint in your body and the time that it takes if every single thing your body can do happens in the space of one footstep, there's no faking that. You can't micromanage that. The things that aren't moving or the things that are moving too much or the things that are not doing the right thing at the right time, they're all going to show up in your gait cycle. There's no faking it. Whereas you can cheat certain assessments. And it's a, well, I mean, if you have a good eye, you can kind of spot when somebody's cheating, but not always. Like it's very, very subtle sometimes. 
But with gait, it shows you what the person can't do. And that's a really lovely thing to know what's missing from their movement system and seeing, well, if we give that back, then what will be the outcome of that? When we're talking injuries, like someone's injured, they're maybe like hip and they're trying to figure out what's going on. They feel it like with squatting or sit to stand, anything like that. What are you then doing in the looking at in the gait cycle to kind of help figure out like, why is the hip bothering them when they're doing these other activities? Mm-hmm. So I guess if we could make up a, make up an example. So say someone is doing a squat and they constantly get like their growing is pinchy on one side or something like that. Um, well, we'd want to know, well, why is that happening? And how does that show up potentially in how they're walking? What's that right hip doing that's different than their other hip. So you might watch them walk and observe how, if you're looking at their pelvis from behind, when they're taking a step forwards on one side, their pelvis hikes. When they take a step forwards and get their weight into the other foot, it just comes to level. It doesn't actually hike to the other side. In an ideal step through the gate cycle, we want to see step forwards, pelvis hikes, step forwards the other foot, pelvis hikes pretty similarly. And that hiking of the pelvis is actually how we, uh, part of the mechanics of getting our weight fully onto one leg. So if your pelvis hikes on one side, then we're able to access getting our weight onto that leg. If it doesn't hike on the other side, we might not be able to get our weight actually onto that leg by adducting the hip, by getting the pelvis to sit over top of the leg. So we might have other strategies of doing that. For example, if your pelvis can't hike on one side and you can't actually get your weight to adduct into that leg, we might find like a twist through the spine or a side bend or a foot that pronates a little more than the other foot or whatever other way the body has found to accomplish the goal of getting the center of mass onto that other leg. And so if we see someone and they're only able to hike on the one side, their pelvis only ever gets over to one foot then we can think about, well, what's that doing to the joint spaces? That would be adducting the hips. So if you're visualizing your pelvis hiking up on the right side, the pubic symphysis is kind of swinging down towards the right leg and closing the space between the femur and the pelvis. We'd call that an adduction of the hip. And maybe they can't get out of that. So when they take their step on their other leg, they get to neutral, but they never actually abduct that hip and so we could say well what's the state of the muscles in that area then if they're constantly hiked and adducting into that right hip then those adductors on the right would be probably a little bit more short and unable to get long again the muscles on the outside of the hip all those abductors would be stuck along in that hiked position unable to shorten to contract and push the person off of that leg into the other side and if that's their only option they have because that's all they can really do for whatever reason. And we don't really know the reason why in this hypothetical example, maybe it was an injury or something, who knows. But if that's the way they walk, that's the way they squat, that's the way they're going to do anything really is with that setup, that organization. So if we can spot that in their gait, and then we can help them to experience getting the other end of the spectrum. If you can only adduct your right hip, what happens if we show you how to abduct that right hip? and adduct the left hip. So we're getting you out of that pattern. In theory, that experience of the other end of the spectrum should provide 
a new input that shows where center is, if you can experience all the way to the right and then get out of there, pass through middle, go all the way to the left and get out of there and pass through the middle. I always think about it like, uh, remember joysticks and how you would have to do that figure eight to, to calibrate it and then it would know where the middle is. It's almost like that with the body as a crude example. And then when the body can sense where's the middle, that middle point is where we can access either side of center. So in anatomy and motion, we have this philosophy of finding center and it's not by being neutral and stable and squeezing things and holding our idea of neutral. It's allowing ourselves to experience both ends of the spectrum and trusting that our body has this innate intelligence that it will, having experienced the extremes, know where our best sense of middle is. Because I don't think that we can consciously know where center is of our body. If you've ever tried to hold yourself in a neutral position, I don't really think it goes very well. <laughs> we kind of just have to trust, <laughs> trust we have all the joint options available to unconsciously find center. And that's how our bodies move in gait is it's unconscious. We're not micromanaging it. You like then that. in the example, sorry to interrupt, in the example of the squat. So then if we spot that in their gait, it's probably showing up in their squat. If we can address that imbalance and address that limitation with a very specific exercise for that person to help them adduct the left hip, abduct the right hip, uh, then probably their squat's going to go a lot smoother too, because now their system knows how to operate with a more centered structure. Awesome. What I was going to say is I think probably like under the age of five, we're probably great at finding center. And then after that, we start developing all of our movement compensations and habits and things and then we lose our center <laughs> yeah and sometimes I think we're born without a center too imagine if you were born and uh, I see this sometimes with some of my clients who've had really challenging deliveries where they've been yanked out by their head and you can just kind of see their their head doesn't really sit straight and they've never reported any accidents in their life but they have this kind of wonky position with their head and then if you were to ask them well what, how did you what was your birth like they got squeezed and I have this one client who had her head lodged under her mom's rib cage and she was breech. So they had to like yank her out by her bottom end, but her head got stuck. So they were yanking, 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 and then finally pop. It was like this massive pop and she came out and you got to wonder like that amount of traction on an infant who is super malleable and then the head being compressed and then suddenly popping out that would probably do something to one's body. And so that person might not have ever really known where quote unquote true center is, but they'd all they'd have their perception of center, but it might not be the most optimal and efficient for allowing them to move through life with ease and without discomfort. Yeah, that's a great point. It's, it's one of those things I, you know, I've talked to chiropractors and they're always, I would say always, but some of them talk about like getting infants in and, and things like that. And when you describe this, like, like you do. I'm like, maybe that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And then in our infancy, that's when all our, our motor responses are developed. And those are super important for building the foundation for the next level, which is the, the, the mechanics we use for upright walking, which is then the foundation for the next level, which is whatever we choose to do from there, athletic wise or skill wise. Let's take a quick break now to talk about OS first compression and bracing. It is commonly known that compression helps with circulation. We see that medically decreasing your risk of blood clots. We see that on flights, 
using compression to decrease swelling, and even with racing, a lot of times we'll see it with decreasing or improving our circulation there as well. What you might not know though is we actually decrease the fatigue in our feet and legs when we use compression while training. Why is this? The added compression actually helps the muscles fire faster and better. So that means all those little small muscles in your foot and lower leg don't have to work quite as hard when you do every single thing you do. Long-term, it means you get to perform better for longer. So check out OS First Compression for yourself. Test it out. See if you get those amazing benefits that I notice for myself. You can head over to osfirst.com to check out all of their amazing products. And if you use code GETYOURFIX at checkout, you can save 15%. You can also head over to getyourfixpt.com slash partners, get a direct link to OS first, as well as see all the other partners that I have some discounts for. And now let's get back to the conversation. So on that note, not that I really wanted to, not that I thought about going into like developmental stuff. <laughs> um, I'm like, this stuff is just fascinating all for people, I think, and for me. Um, like, what do we, when you talk about like developmentally thing, different things happening, or maybe a lack of developmental skills, motor skills, how does that then affect our gait pattern as we get, say, in our teens, 20s, in adult life? Yeah, that's a very good question. And it's something that I'm studying, but I'm definitely not an expert on. So I wanted to say that up front that I, I'm investigating this but my training is incomplete and my experience could be a lot more. Um, so the question, how does that lack of, uh, I guess, correct infant development, how does that then affect how we're able to walk? Well, all the building blocks of upright joint mechanics are developed between the years of, well, even starting in utero. And until the age of about three years old is when all the reflexes are fully integrated. And we start to walk around one year old-ish. Um, and to take myself again, for example, because that's the only body I can really know very well is my own. I, I personally didn't crawl and I stood up early. And when we don't crawl, then we're not really priming the joint mechanics that we need to then stand up. So something is going to have to become altered in order to allow us to get up and walk because no matter what, we're going to stand up and walk. But if we, for example, um, my one of my colleagues in the UK, Helen Hall, who is awesome, um, and she does a lot more work with the integration of primary motor responses and anatomy and motion gait mechanics, and she works with runners, uh, you'd love talking with her, um, she has this analogy of having Lego blocks and say we have these 30 Lego blocks and we need to have all of them so that we can build our foundation with. But some of us don't have all 30 of those Lego blocks that we should get in infancy. And so if in my case, I didn't really develop my hips very well and then I stood up early. So I, I missed a couple of milestones. And I've had a ton of back injuries. And what I can see through working with Helen and investigating it is I have a ton of mobility in my lumbar spine extending. 
And that's literally all that I do. My hips don't really move, but I have a lot of movement in my lumbar spine, almost like that's my hips now. And, and then I think back on, well, I had so many back injuries, but also I had this, uh, for whatever reason, this affinity for doing forms of movement that required a lot of back bending like dance and gymnastics. It's as if my system knew that you're really good at extending your lumbar spine. Let's do these activities. <laughs> Even though it's going to, in the long term, probably it'd be excessive and cause some issues. Um, so that's my personal example of it. I didn't really get the, the development of hip flexion, but I certainly developed a lot of lumbar extension. And then if we look at how our bodies move when we walk, there's a particular phase of gait when the foot lands on the ground and our foot pronates and we absorb shock through our body and the hip flexes and the glutes load up. I actually can't really do that, um, but I, I can't flex my hips in that phase of gait. I don't have any glutes in that phase of gait, but I have a ton of lumbar extension. So that pattern that I never really developed as a, as a kid and I don't know why I didn't crawl, who knows, but I didn't. And, and it's showing up now in my ability to actually get my, my mass in an efficient way onto my leg without using my spine as a forward propulsion mechanism. So it's been very, it's been very interesting um, looking at those things. And of course, there's many, many primary infant reflex, reflexes and everyone's going to be a little bit different. So I think the main thing is like, we're all, we're all so unique in how we developed. We're also unique in our injury history and what we do with our bodies and the sports that we do. And then our jobs and everything. We just, uh, sometimes you can't really know <laughs> what, uh, what is the, what are the factors or uh, what's uh, the most important factor. There's one's whole life to consider, but going back to the beginning is very interesting to do. Yeah. That's super fascinating. Mm -hmm. um, diving into your back and hip situation a little bit more, because I feel like, from talking with people, watching people, I see that often as far as a lot of overuse of the back, not using the hips as much, not really understanding how to use the hips, the glutes, how, like, what sort of things like are you doing to teach your body how to actually use your hip, not use your back when you're doing different movements and activities? Mm -hmm. It's a very good question. Um, and I'm really hesitant to say because I'm me and other people are them and what works for me might not work for other people. But I think on a universal level, however you personally can build your awareness of what's moving and what's not moving and find your way with it, that's going to be the most helpful thing. And myself, I, I could not do it with the help, without the help of some of my mentors so it's been a real blessing over this Zoom uh, COVID period, being able to work with people online who I wouldn't have considered working with before and to have their eye on me and help me match my perception with reality. So I can feel like, for example, I'm flexing at my hip and then they'll look at me and say, no, you're not flexing your hip. Can you see how you're twisting? If you're twisting, if it's not clean in the plane, you're not doing the thing that you're trying to do. And then just those little cues like that have been so helpful, but just on my own, I'm very tactile and I like to have hands on body parts that I'm trying to move. 
So I think the tools that we have to help ourselves are one, really having a good understanding of how an optimal, ideal human being should be able to move. Uh, what are the what are the biomechanics we're looking for to happen? So in the case of a, uh, if you're investigating, is my hip actually flexing or what's happening here? How do we flex our hip? Uh, well, we need, there's a couple of ways of flexing your hip. We need to have a pelvis that's able to anterior tilt. We need to have a femur that's able to lift up towards the pelvis to close the space at the front. But there are other ways of flexing the hip. Um, for example, we can have a pelvis that's not moving and a leg that's moving up. We can have a leg that's not moving and a pelvis that's anterior tilting down. We can have the both uh, ends of the or both bones of that joint moving together. So pelvis anterior tilting, as well as that femur that's flexing up. Or we can have the pelvis actually posterior tilting, but the femur flexing more and more and more to close the space at the front. So it's about almost knowing which one of those versions am I doing, or am I doing neither of them? And is the one I'm doing serving me at the appropriate place and time and gate? Because interestingly, all those five options for how to flex your hip happen at different times in the gait cycle. And so even if we're on the floor doing straight leg raises, and yeah, I'm stretching my hip or flexing my hip, I'm feeling my hamstring load and stretch, but is that actually how it happens when we're walking? Will our bodies get that information that's hardwired kind of into our DNA about how gait should happen? Because um, sometimes it doesn't really integrate well because it hasn't been a meaningful ex experience for our nervous system to learn that this is this is the way you need to get it. Um, so it's a lot of tinkering for me. It's it's having that one that understanding of this is the ideal I'm shooting for. Two, this is what I'm currently doing. So where's my point A on my roadmap or on my Google Maps? I, <laughs> do I know what I'm even doing right now? Because <laughs> a lot of us are trying to change the way we move, but not really looking at how we're moving right now. We're not observing ourselves as objectively as we can. We're just trying to fix, fix, fix. And I'm very guilty of that. So to be in a space of being willing to look at what am I actually doing and where do I need to go? And then filling in that A to Z, that journey is very individual. And what works for me won't work for you, won't work for Sally. Uh, it's it's a little bit of a process of investigation, and I like to call it movement detectivery. That's the job title I give myself is <laughs> movement detective, which means I might not always be right, but I'm always going to be looking for the truth and investigating deeper. And I think having the right mindset, you said, how does one do that? Like, how does one learn how to actually flex their hip if they know that they have this compensation and they can't do it and they can't feel the muscles. Well, I think having the right mindset for it is important too, that you just never give up looking. And a lot of people give up really fast. And then they think, oh, I've tried everything. Did you really? Or did you just stop trying after five different things that you uh, went down? Um, and I like to call those four things. Those are the, the tools for the movement detective. I love that title. <laughs> <laughs> You can have it too, if you like. <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> um, no, some, some important things I think you said there that um, I think are super important or that, you know, kind of inferred from it is like, we don't do a great job of self-assessing ourselves. Like even as clinicians, you and I both, like we need, like we have outside people watching us do things, helping us figure out like, what our body's really doing. So self-assessment 
is not always the greatest and you really have to know what you're looking for. So I think it's one of the reasons there's a lot of reasons people don't necessarily get better doing the things on their own. But I think one of the huge reasons is they just, it's hard for us to assess ourselves. It's hard for us to know exactly what our bodies are supposed to be doing. If we've never really learned, if someone's never really learned movement patterns. Mm -hmm. And that's a good point is that if we go back to the example of this, this client of mine who got yanked out by her butt and got her head caught and (laughs) that trauma at birth, um, there are, there are going to be some movements that she's probably never done. And so it's not even a matter of relearning something. It's a matter of learning for the first time, something that she just completely missed. And that's a whole different journey and probably a whole lot harder. Oh, absolutely. Like it's one thing to have a movement until you're like 10 and then develop poor postural habits or whatever, but yeah, to not ever have a, have a movement, I think is a lot tougher to for your, your brain to make that connection. Mm-hmm. So we've talked about a number of things today. Um, anything we haven't talked about that you feel is really important to, for the listeners to hear. Hmm. What do you think your listeners most are challenged by? And I wonder if I could say something that's meaningful in that context. Yeah. You know, let's, um, on that note, then let's dive into the, just cause I, I think it's something that can never be addressed too much. Let's dive into the hip foot connection. Um, cause I know it's often missed with a lot of people, um, whether they're self-treating or seeing somebody. Um, so I'd love to kind of have that discussion a little bit as far as why those are so interrelated and why one can create issues in the, the other. Mm, yeah. So the best way of understanding that is actually to feel it in your body. And it's the, it's one of those things that it becomes very evident when we're in the closed chain, but not so evident when we're in the open chain. So when we're upright standing on our feet and we have this interaction with gravity, there's a particular way that the joints, the surfaces of the bones themselves have no option but to articulate unless something's gone wrong. It's like going down a slide and you kind of have to go down the path of the slide because gravity puts you there and there's these boundaries um, unless you break the slide and you fall off of it. Um, But in an ideal situation, we just go down the slide. And that's kind of how our joints are set up is with gravity in place. They just, they have this mechanical pathway that they ideally will take. And that's what we see in the closed chain, but it's not the same in the open chain. So, uh, I mean, if listeners want to stand up and try this, a very simple way of feeling the connection between our hips and our feet is to think about, well, what can the pelvis do, starting with just a sagittal plane motion? our pelvis can do a anterior tilt and a posterior tilt. So if everyone who is listening, if they want to, you don't have to, but if you were to just try and stand up and do an anterior tilt, what you might observe is how your femurs both internally rotate in response to that anterior tilt. And if you were to posterior tilt, the reverse should happen. Our femurs would just externally rotate. And then if we followed that down into your knees, If your femurs, when you anterior tilt, start to internally rotate, you can see what happens to your knees is that internal rotation of the femurs is going to start to flex your knees just a little bit. When you posterior tilt, 
the knees will start to extend a little bit as the femurs externally rotate. So then if we follow that down further, if we anterior tilt and the femurs internally rotate and then the knees start to gently flex, what's happening with the lower leg? Well, the lower leg can't be going in the opposite direction as your femur. They, that would be just kind of an awful feeling. You can try it. You can try twisting your tibia and your femur in opposite directions, and you shouldn't be able to do that without having some problems. So we can just follow that. Those uh, joints articulating in such that the tibias go internal as the femurs go internal with that anterior tilts. And then if your tibias are also going internal rotation, what's right under the tibia is we have our lovely talus bone. And when that talus bone internally rotates, what global foot shape do we end up in? Pronation. Pronation. So we can see how if we have this anterior tilt at the pelvis, it leads down all the way by virtue of the joint sequencing and coordination into pronation of the feet. And if we posterior tilt, all the reverse happens. We posterior tilt, the femurs start to externally rotate, the knees start to extend, the tibias are externally rotating, the talus starts to externally rotate, and that external rotation of the talus starts to draw the foot into a more supinated structure. So it's a, it's a triplanar set of joint sequencings at the hip, just initiated with a anterior or posterior tilt. We know that anterior tilt of the pelvis in the closed chain should give us a flexion of the hip. So when the hip flexes and internally rotates and adducts, by virtue of just doing an anterior tilt, we have a pronation down into the foot. So if we know that, that in gait, that's the sequencing we want to see, and we see somebody who has something opposite to that, we can probably suspect there are going to be some inefficiencies and probably some discomfort. Uh, for example, I have one client who is the opposite of that. When she posterior tilts her pelvis, if you remember our sequencing, we want to have the hip to extend, externally rotate the femur, the knee extends, the tibia externally rotates, the talus externally rotates, and it draws the foot into supination. When she posterior tilts, all the reverse happens and her legs internally rotate and her feet collapse into pronation. And I'm like, how is your body doing that? And she's in a lot of discomfort. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, so knowing that is very powerful and then bringing that to her awareness uh, is very powerful because then she can start to sync up the joints again in a gentle, respectful way without forcing things because that's probably been a pattern that's developed over a long period of time. And, and so it's been lovely to see that starting to slowly move in a more congruent direction. So with that in mind, I'm curious, um, for someone who has like excessive lumbar lordosis always is in an anterior tilt, which I'm included in this, this population. We see it a lot in gymnasts. Um, I found out actually from talking with, a someone else that, it's actually pretty common in runners as well. Um, for someone who is in that position, doesn't get to posterior pelvic tilts very easily, if at all, how does that impact what's happening during gait then? We can think about that spectrum of movement again. In the space of every footstep, we ought to be able to, at every single joint, go from one end of the spectrum through the middle to the other end of the spectrum and back like a pendulum. So let's say if somebody only can access their anterior tilt, but they can't posterior tilt their pelvis, or they can, but they only posterior tilt to neutral. So if they have over on the left-hand side of the spectrum, 
anterior tilt on the right-hand side of the spectrum, posterior tilt, they're going to be skewed for their center to be more here. And I don't know if you have video on this uh, podcast, but my finger is on the left-hand side of the spectrum, not in the middle of the spectrum. And so their capacity to move within their perceived center is going to limit them to go to anterior tilt, maybe a little bit less anteriorly tilted, but never get to a full posterior tilt. And then in the space and time that it takes to take a step, it's 0.6 to 0.8 seconds. Uh, do you think they're going to have enough time to get to a posterior tilt in each footstep they take? Not at all. Probably not. Even if they try, if you can't do a posterior tilt and you try to force a posterior tilt, you're probably going to use another body part. <laughs> you're probably going to use the thing that you can use to accomplish that goal. Uh, so then we can look at, well, where are they moving instead of that posterior tilt? So for a lot of people, if they can't access a posterior tilt, well, they might be uh, flexing somewhere else. They might have a rib cage that they push back. Um, they might, I don't know, have a head they push forward. They might do something to manage that situation. There's this concept we work with in our AIM philosophy, which is exchange where if something can't go to the left, we're going to find another body part to balance us and go to the right. If we can't get our pelvis to move forwards, then we're going to use something else to move forwards. If you can't get this thing to anterior tilt, we'll find another body part to anterior tilt. We're going to find something to get the job done because we have this amazing closed system body where everything always has to add up to 100%. So we're always going to find a way. So how would an inability to posterior tilt show up in a gait cycle? It could be anything. <laughs> we just have to be open to seeing what's there in front of us and seeing how well, when they take their step forward, they're not posterior tilting, but they are doing this other weird thing, like they're just pushing their head in front of them when they should have a posterior tilt or something like that. Um, so we just kind of have to get curious about it and see. But then knowing what we want to have happen, we can see where things aren't lining up the way that they should. And in our flow motion model, we have all of our, we have made the seven main phases of gait mapped out with what every joint should be doing. So we kind of look at it like this grid of, well, at this moment in time, X body part should be doing this. And, oh, it's not. So let's look at all the other boxes in the chart. What else could be happening that's not happening because this box isn't checked? Um, but there's going to be something. There's going to be something that shows up if you can't access both ends of that spectrum and our center is no longer real center anymore. Then we are going to see some inefficiencies. And it's up to us to, again, be a bit of a detective and, and figure out what are they doing. Awesome. Thank you for that description. Well, cool. Well, Monica, it has been a great conversation today. If someone has more questions for you, if they just want to follow you, um, where can they find you? So you can pop over to my website, monicavolkmar.com. That's Monica with a K. And that's where I have a blog, um, which I sometimes write things about on. And I also have on my website, you can find some if you're interested in exploring the, the work that I do, which is based around the anatomy and motion framework for optimizing our mechanics, like we'd see it in gait, I have a few things on there. Some things are free, some things are paid. My main offering, if you're interested in all the things that I've been talking about, 
is called Liberated Body, and it's a, a workshop that has four movement lessons that take you through your whole body exploring the closed chain mechanics that we like to see in gait. And it's in a way that's really accessible to anybody, regardless of whether they are an anatomy person or a therapist or a mover. I wanted to make it accessible at all levels because what I've observed is that even really highly trained, educated people in therapy and movement professions, we, like you said earlier, Brianne, we all struggle to assess ourselves. And when we know something in our own systems, then we really know it for real. And it doesn't, you don't need an anatomical education to experience something in your body. Anyone can do that. So I have folks that have taken this workshop with me that are musicians that have no clue about their bodies. Some people that are, um, I don't want to say average Joes, but yeah, they're just regular people that have nothing to do with our world. And then there are some people that are very experienced practitioners that have done the work and all have gotten something valuable out of it for their own understanding of their bodies. And I think that's what make, makes it a little bit different um, is that it's like a 10 year old could do it, but <laughs> it's going to be really useful to know what your body's doing and how to optimize it. Um, you can follow me on the Instagram uh, at Mon Volkmar. And that's about it. That should take you to all the things. Awesome. Well, thank you again so much. This was really informative and I think a lot of people will find value in it. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, Brianne. I love geeking out. Awesome. <laughs> I really hope you enjoyed today's episode of Highly Functional and had some great takeaways from it. Now, if you are dealing with your own foot and ankle issues and would love to get back to running and racing again, I highly encourage you to check out runwithhappyfeet.com to find out what it looks like to work with me. Or if you want to do things even faster and take a deep dive into your specific situation, then book a free call with me at runwithhappyfeet.com book dash call. And finally, if you know someone who would benefit from the information provided today, I would love for you to share this podcast with that person. Now go out and have an awesome day.